This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back, everybody. It is Jay Scott. This is the Hook Rocks, the ultimate rock community podcast. I've been rocking out today to some blues-based new music, and I'm really excited to talk about what I've been listening to with our next guest, hailing from Brooklyn, New York. The band is Love Honey. They are from Brooklyn, New York, like I just said, and and this is the Latest episode of the New Music Spotlight, and I'd like to welcome guitarist Tommy White. What's going on, Tommy? How you doing? Hey, what's happening? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm good. I appreciate you doing this. Thanks again for coming on. You know, a little backstory for the audience. You reached out to me with uh, your music that I was not familiar with about a month ago, and I was uh, captivated. I really enjoyed it. It's that sleazy blues rock that I... Thoroughly, thoroughly enjoy, and just uh, you know, your latest EP, Cruda, released in 2019, was just just awesome. Thanks for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you, man. And and, and uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm glad that you know, people have dug the you know our latest podcast. We definitely feel like it was our best one that we put out to date. So I'm glad that the reception of that's been pretty good. Yeah, it's awesome. I really did enjoy it. But uh, as we move forward into the podcast here on the episode, we always start with the same question for first-time guests, and that is the essence of the show, which is just like every rock song has a hook that sucks you in, every rock fan has a moment, whether it's a song, an album, a band, or performance 
that hooked them on rock and roll? What was it for you? Oh man. <laughs> that, that, that hooked me. I would say the moment that really hooked me was, uh, getting, uh, the Monterey top festival from the library. I got to, I remember getting, um, the DVD of that. And, uh, it was like a deluxe DVD. So it had every, it had like all the uh, extra stuff, meaning that it had, it had like the full Otis Redding performance and, and, and then it had the full, uh, Jimmy Andy experience performance, which was their debut, their American debut. And, uh, from the moment like Brian Jones came out and introduced him saying this is the most exciting guitarist I've ever heard. You know what I mean? And, and then he comes out there with the feather bowl on and, and blasting the killing floor. I was like, okay, this is, this is it. You know, this, this is, this is the real deal. So I, I probably watched, I think I was like, I think I renewed that DVD from the library like a thousand times. And then I was like late returning and I didn't want to get it back because I just watched it over and over that was kind of the moment that got me hooked as like a guitar player because I was able to hear it and I was able to see it. And, and, and that was the, that was kind of really uh, an experience, no pun intended. (laughs) How long before you picked up a guitar after you saw that? Oh my goodness. I mean, I think not, not, not too much, not too much after that because I was, I, I come really from a film background. That was my thing. So I was, went to film school. And so I was always into visual stuff in movies and movies and stuff like that. So that was around the time that I was like transitioning and just kind of taking a break for a minute. And so I remember at that point, after seeing, after seeing that DVD, I was like, okay, I'm really going to do it. So, you know, I spoke to my dad about everything and, um, at the, and he just told me, "Hey, if you're serious about this, man, I want to get you a get you a, like a, you know a real guitar or something." Because I was kind of like into the idea of just like kicking around with with anything, you know, anything I might just get my hands on just to play. And he said, "Well, no, if you're serious, man, let's get some, something real." So at that point, I'm probably like maybe like two or three weeks later, went to the guitar center and he got me a, and then he said, "What you want to get?" And I like kicked out a Gibson Flying V, and that was it. He got it for me. The Flying V is such a recognizable design, you know. I mean, it's just it's so powerful, you know. Whenever someone plays it, I mean, you so, you find yourself staring at the guitar because it's so different than what most people play. It just has that mm-hmm. that, that definition of a rock guitar player immediately when you see that that uh, that body style. Yeah, I mean, it it definitely. It's like off the bat, it just screams rock and roll. And up until that point, um, you know, he was the only person that I had saw with the guitar. And then, you know, once I started to delve into rock and, and, and get more into it, get more involved into it, seeing everything, that's when I was able to see Albert King having a flying V. That's when I was able to see the Kinks. Uh, using a flying V, holding it really high up, and he's you know he played a flying V, and that's when I was able to see Mark Bowen from T Rex play a play a flying V. So, and these are all musicians and bands that you know that I draw a lot of inspiration from. So, so, so seeing them with that guitar, kind of like said okay, yeah. and and at the time you know 
and still even now, not a lot of people use that guitar, especially like in blues rock and stuff like that. You know, you, you, you might see like a Strad or, or maybe like a semi-hollow body or something like that. So I definitely was, I liked it because anyone who picked it up, they just didn't know how to hold it or how to play it. And with me, it just, it fell right into place. I really, I really, I really liked it. But start to start off, it's like I wanted something that looked cool. And then after that, I said, I'll worry about figuring out how to play it later, you know. Where did your guitar journey go after that? I mean, Hendrix is such a huge name, a huge influence, and a lot of guitar players. What was next for you? You know, who were the players that followed that kind of shaped your influence? Well, I think I, I think initially, initially, at least for me, you know, seeing that video, you know, seeing the Monterey Pop Festival and all that type of stuff, and then and then hearing all the music, I was like extremely like intimidated on on like how to like play guitar and how to do everything because I was like, oh, this is just too complicated and everything. And, and so at that time, I thought about like, am I really going to be able to do this? Because, you know, what what do I do? Because it's, 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 it's not the easiest thing to, you know, you got to build up the calluses, you got to do all that stuff. So I kind of took a different approach to just, at that point of just, it made me want to, I'm like a thinker in terms of always like the backstory. And so I want to know where stuff began. So I said, well, you know, I'm just going to listen to a lot of music. And so what I did after that was I just started, you know, investigating and reading about him and reading about his influences and the bands he was in, whether it be like Little Richard and Isley Brothers, Wilson Pickett and everything. And, and so, and I just started, and so, so that took me kind of to the beginning of rock and roll. So Little Richard kind of got me into Chuck Berry and Bo Diddley and all that. So I just kept listening to all these different artists and, and then the music started to become a lot easier to me. And then, and then from that, I was able to get into like the Stooges and uh, the T-Rex. And when I found that stuff, especially with the Stooges, it, I, 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 after hearing them, hearing that first record and stuff like that, I said, okay, I could actually do this because Hendrix is such a, such a God is, you know, in the music, it just like, this is like, you know, you, you're going straight to Harvard. So I was like, I need to kind of go backwards and kind of like, go to school before I can graduate to that level of stuff. So when I got into, you know, man, man I went to the library and I remember I got like a punk uh, compilation. So the, music, the library was really like, that was my mecca of like learning because I was able there to get DVDs on just seeing live performances and just listen to music. I said, you know, the best thing, like all the guys back in the day, they got their best learning from listening to records. I started listening to the Chuck Berry, like I said before, the Bogdili, the early rock and soul, and Buddy Holly, and all that stuff. And from that point, honestly, it was just easier to pick up the guitar. And then I got like a punk compilation, and they had they showed all the stuff from the seventies when they were like writing in the in the bathrooms, three chords, and you could start go start a band. So that kind of like inspiring. So I was like, okay, so and you know you don't have to be, you know, this expert in order to play, you know, but you got to have feel and you got to have some sort of, you know, determination in terms of this is what you want to do. So once I started doing that, then that brought me to like the Ramones, Sex Pistols, 
on a lot of that early stuff. But, but you know, in, in the path of that, I really, like, I lean more towards Stooges and the New York Dolls and that and just that type of rock and roll that kind of, you could still hear the soul in it, but it was dirty, it was bluesy. And um, from that, it just started to pick up. So I started to develop, you know, skills and just start throwing chords together and, and, and you know, working on hands just working on my hands and my fingers and just listening to a ton of old school rock and roll. And then next thing I knew, you know, the Hendrix stuff wasn't as, um, as intimidating, so to speak, because it was, it was like, okay, let me do my own thing and then find, you know, and take parts from him that I really like, but then also take parts from the Stooges and from the T-Rex and, and from the garage type of stuff and then take stuff from like the Howlin' Wolf and the blues stuff that I really like. And then, and then I was able to kind of develop my own, my own style. So after studying in the library for like a year, I'm listening to music and then I would just go home, pick up the guitar and try to like, and then I remember playing like, I want to be uh, like, uh, I want to be your dog, playing, finding that on the guitar. And I was like, okay, that's the intro to that. And you know, I just kept going from there and, and that was pretty off the races, you know. You mentioned some players that are really definable. I mean, obviously there's Hendrix, but you mentioned, you know, Albert King and you mentioned Chuck Berry and then two bands mm-hmm. with just such a recognizable song too, is sound as well, which is the Stooges and T-Rex. You know, so that's, I mean, you're going from your blues bass and then you've got your punkish type music with the Stooges and you've got your, you know, your your glam you know, uh, style with T-Rex, you know, with, uh, mm-hmm. that was coming out of the UK. I mean, that's an interesting, interesting influence of, you know, a lot of stuff just getting put in the pot, a, a big pot of stew of, of really definable guitar tones and guitar sounds. Yeah. Yeah. That, absolutely. Cause you know, T-Rex is what put me on to, to Bowie and then from Bowie, I was able to hear, you know, uh, Nick Ronson and hear how, you know, his electrifying guitar playing. But, you know, I, I always respected T-Rex so much because he's actually playing the guitar on the record. It's such a catchy riff. I'm like a riff guy. I always like riffs. So, so I kind of like pride myself on trying to have riffs that are like, you know, really define the song because the guitar solos and stuff like that, that's groovy and great. But to me, I want I'm always a guitar player where I, I, I want to be able to you know, for people to hear my music and be able to pick up the guitar and be able to play, you know, play that riff, you know, and so T-Rex, you know, you know, Mark Bowen is just such an iconic riff maker. You listen to 20th Century Boy, Telegraph Sam, and just, these are all just massive, cool riffs. And then at the same time, his solo work playing the guitar is actually played at the same time to a lot of fuzzy was and Octavia because he was a big Hendrix fan and a big Chuck Berry fan. So, and then you know, researching this stuff, then you find out like, oh, okay, now I see why he sounds this way. But he just kind of adapted that, you know, coming out of you know the rockabilly and the early Elvis stuff, kind of developed for his own, you know, unique sound. You know? Interesting. So, where did Love Honey come from? And you guys formed in 2016. What is the history of the mm-hmm. band? I worked at a music rehearsal studio in Brooklyn. The Sweatshop is like a legendary music rehearsal studio. And uh, that's where all, you know, 
fans in Manhattan, the whole cross will come play there. So many people have come in there and practice and just to shows and stuff like that. And so I'm working there as a technician and a guy actually, you know, we, I think we were like looking, they were like hiring someone or looking for someone and someone ended up coming back to work there that had, you know, unbeknownst to me that had previously worked there before. And that was Tom, and, you know, our drummer. And so he was like transitioning kind of like, I guess, coming back from Florida. So he came back there, you know, to work for a few months and stuff like that. And when he came back into the city. So me and him hit it off, you know, right right away, you know, talking about like, you know, old school R and D and then we would and then we would listen to like a lot of Albert King, a lot of that stuff and we and we would and we never, you know, you know, really talked about like, you know, uh putting a band together. It kind of just came organically because at the time I was looking for something and um, I had found like a singer and a drummer online and I remember playing like the demo stuff that I recorded on my phone to Tom and he's like, Oh man, I really like this. You know, this, this is dope. And I'm like, yeah, I would love to play drums on this. And and um turns out though that Tom was actually like leaving to go back to Florida. So I said, Oh man, that sucks, man, because that would have been great, you know, to do that. And then I went, you know, so he left, he went back to Florida and so what ended up happening with that band, we actually found uh, a different drummer and a different bass player that that when I found that drummer he was coming in to practice at the at the place and we and we found out that we had the same last name and it also he was from the same uh, town that my dad was from and we we're like man this is crazy we might be related related and we're laughing and stuff you know? and he's like yeah I play drums and then you know, I have a bass player. And we've been playing in a band, but we're looking for something else. And that bass player happens to be Matt. So what ended up happening was, so the, the drummer and I talked, and then he brought in he brought in uh, Matt, and then the singer that I found at that particular time on online. We all jammed together, and it worked. It's okay. This is cool, man. This is dope. It's working, and, and that was more of like a traditional '60s or like '70s R&B. It had hints of rock, but it wasn't really. It wasn't nowhere in comparison to how rocky we are now. And, you know, the build is going nice, but, you know, just one thing or another, like, you know, people are on different paths and stuff like that. And, and the drummer ended up moving back down south. And Matt went away for like a scholarship. So everything kind of like imploded and just out of nowhere just fizzled out. And uh, I was like, damn, this sucks. So, I'm kind of like running all around the place, but anyway, so that just resolved. And but then what ended up happening was like I'm at work, and one like maybe a year or so later, I get like a random text from Tom, and he's like, "Dude, I'm ready to come back to New York. You want to start like a bluesy, sleazy rock and roll band and like take over the world, something like you know for that." And I was like, "Yeah, man, that would be dope. I'm totally down to do something like that." Now keep in mind, we had never played before. We were just buddies that knew each other from when we worked together, and Tom hit me up. So I was like, okay, man. He was like, you got a singer? And I was like, yeah, man, I think I might have a singer. And so that's where Allie comes into play. So before I started that 60s, 70s R&B band, I had met Allie, put out an ad like on Craigslist looking for a singer that was into like 
the Kills and Jack White and stuff like that because I wanted to you know, write the songs. And that's when I met her. So we met. We hit it off right away. I think we wrote like maybe two songs or so that day that we met. And it was awesome. You know, she had never been in a band before. And so we wrote, we wrote a lot of cool stuff and we were just each other music. So we stayed, you know, friends for like that whole year. Even when I started that, that R&B band, because at that time she just wasn't, you know, she just wasn't in the place to kind of like start a band. So we remained, we remained tight and I'm always, you know, sending each other music and, and we remembered our old songs. But now when you flash forward to when that band's over, Allie had like maybe texted me, maybe, I'm not joking, maybe about two or three days before Tom had hit me up, just catching up and how you doing, you know, how, how's everything in music? Well, you know, that band that I did, it's not, it's kind of like, you know, it's not happening anymore. Like half the band just like left. And then we just, you know, we just talking and say, hey man, you want to just come to my, come to my job and jam again and just, you know, old times and just have some fun. So we, we linked up, went to my job and literally that day we just like wrote another song. And they're like, man, this is crazy. You think we should just like do this and this time and actually, you know, actually have a band and, and, and go for it and do it. And we was like, okay. And she was like, yeah, I'm down to do it. So she was ready to go. So when those days happened and Tom emailed me and the student texted me, and asked me about the singer. I was like, yeah, man, I got somebody, man. I got a singer. She's dope. And um, let's do it. So Tom um, comes back. Um, we, the three of us get together. We go, me and Allie go over one of the songs that we had written probably a year or so ago, two years ago. Tom, uh, it might have been maybe Wanted or like Sleazy. It might have been one of those songs that was in this early production stage. And Tom just kills it. He nails it. And it's like... It feels great. We're excited. And he's like, this is, okay, man, this is it. So at that time, it was just the three of us. And um, I dug it. We even played a few shows, like our first shows, like on Halloween and stuff. And people dug it and liked it and stuff. And I was just like, man, I'm a really wild, crazy guitar player. I, I, I can't do all the crazy solos that I would love to do because there's nothing holding it down, you know, when you're doing it. So, but I said, okay, if this is what it's going to be, this is what it's going to be because I don't really want to look for anybody because I really dug Matt when he was in the band, when we, when we had our old band. So anyway, Matt sends me an email kind of like maybe two or three months after, you know, Love, Love Honey had was just the, you know, just the three-piece. And he's like, dude, I'm, you know, I'm getting ready to come back to New York. Hey, man, if you ever want to join something again or jam, let me know. And I said, dude, man, that's crazy you asked that. I got a new project and I didn't have bass in it because I was hoping that one day you and I might do something again. Boom, I sent him some demos. He dug it. He came in. And at first it didn't work. Um, for some reason, I guess, you know, Tom and Allie were just used to the three of us playing the way that we were. And I was like, man, this, this kid, man, Matt, he's amazing on bass, man. I've got to give him an opportunity, but it just, just wasn't working. So I said, damn, man, I'm not going to call this. I'm like, this is weird. Um, I thought of a song that me and Matt had wrote when we were in our old band. It was like an R&B song. It was, the, it was what became Beauty and the Struggle from our first EP. I knew that Matt knew all the chord changes. I knew that he you know, knew how to play it. So that was actually the first day that I showed it to Tom and Allie. Matt nailed it, sounded amazing. And then Allie started even writing ideas for lyrics. 
And so I was like, see, man, I told you, this dude is dope, man. He can play, you know? So, and then that, that was kind of the icebreaker. And from that moment, you know, I think the, the full love honey you see right now was, was born. It sounds like a lot of it was by chance, you know, or, you know, you, 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 you talk about, you know, meeting the drummer prior, you talk about the text, you know, prior to connecting with the drummer again, and then the bass player who you met. It sounds like it was all kind of by chance in the beginning, and it all came together when it was meant to come together. Oh, yeah, I, 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 absolutely. It was, it was, it all just cosmically came into play and, and, and everybody was in the, the right headspace to do what needed to be done and everybody was comfortable with each other as far as, you know, being friends and knowing each other, either knowing that person or somebody knowing somebody else. And I think like a lot of the classic and great bands, you know, at least the ones that, you know, the bands that I really dig, they, they knew each other. There was a, there was a, you know, a connection prior to them doing, you know, doing music. So it wasn't just something that was just put together, you know, just just to do it. It was something where these are friends that, you know, want to play music. And I think that's something that's kept us strong to this day, the fact that, you know, we're all really close and everything. So, and, and with that being said, it allows people to say, hey, I don't like this, or this is whack, or, you know, we might not say it in that way, but, no, no one's going to feel offended if something doesn't work or if it's not the vibe because, you know, you're comfortable with this person. You mentioned your influences in the beginning. Jimi Hendrix, Albert King, Chuck Berry, the Stooges, T-Rex, all that. How did you guys fuse everyone's influences together to make your sound? Okay. That's a, that's a, that's a, I think that's a good question. Um, well, Matt and I, when we first met the bass player and we were doing the R&B thing, even though this this band that I'm getting ready to mention had, you know, no con- no, no connection sound-wise to R&B we were doing was the strokes. Because part of when I was in film school and stuff, back then I was I, I got into the strokes um, really, really big. It was, it, was like, it was really, really one of those times where I was like, oh man, this is a really cool band. And so Matt and I were talking about this stuff that we liked in general after, you know, when we met. And then, we, you know, somehow the strokes came out. And he said, oh, came up, came up, excuse me. And he was like, yeah, man, this is about the strokes. And we started talking about their first two albums, stuff like that. And so I think by him, you know, having that really great foundation of, of being a, an awesome bass player, he listened to the strokes, the bass player, is very kind of rooted in R and B. His bass playing is very kind of on that James Jamerson level of that kind of really you know, sticking to the to the core of the song. And so, just by that, you know, being into that, that allowed for his bass playing to fit so well with with the Stooges stuff and stuff like that. Because Strokes, the Stooges are a big influence on the Strokes. So, you know, he Matt didn't have to really know the Stooges, but somehow he was connected to the Stooges because he was connected to the Strokes. And, you know, being with Allie, she's, you know, really you know, loving the White Stripes, that being one of her uh, biggest influences, and Dead Weather and The Kills. All those bands are well-connected to 
the early rock and roll and the connection with, you know, with her, you know, knowing the white stripes that led to her knowing about Captain Beefheart and his R&B, blues rooted stuff because you listen to his music, he's really heavily influenced by Harlem Wolf, which is, you know, a huge influence on me. So it's almost like you were influenced by someone that you really didn't know you were influenced from because you're just listening to the hybrid of them. But me being like kind of that like music nerd, I can hear a band right now and I can say, oh man, I can tell that they're, I can hear the dolls in this band. Even if they don't know, you know, they may know who the New York dolls are, but they might like this band who was, you know, heavily influenced by them. So, and Tom, you know, being well-rounded, you know, he really loved you know, him and Allie, they love the death tones and that heavy drumming and stuff like that. And, and and so when we were able to kind of get together, they're the best musicians to be around because they allow me to just come up with a riff and it might be influenced by like Tom Wolf, but somehow Tom puts his spin on it and Matt puts his spin and Allie puts her vocal spin on it. And I might have to tell somebody, say, well, hey, look, listen to this, uh, listen to this song right here um, from Han Wook. But mine is from, you know, so they can get an idea of like where I'm going with that particular lip. But then they turn around and put all their herbs and spices on it and it, and it, and it just, just works, you know. And how is the writing process for Love Honey? I mean, is who are there primary writers or is it a collaborative effort? What's that process like? Okay, well, definitely definitely a collaborative thing in terms of everybody's, you know, a big part of what happens in terms of the, you know, what you end up getting. Like I never tell Matt what to play or Tom what to play or Allie what to write. We, um, but at the same time, they don't tell me what to play. It's kind of just like a well-oiled machine, meaning that like I'll come in with a lift and I'm not really like a jammer. I'm not that, that's never been my thing. I, I'm probably like would never even do that. If someone said, "Hey man, come on stage and jam," like just do this, I was like, "That's just never been me." You know, I'm just the type of guy that I like to like write songs. So I would have to already have a verse, a chorus, a bridge, and stuff like that. So primarily with Love Honey, that's what I'll do. I'll come in, I'll say, "Guys, this is the verse. This is what I got for the verse. This is what I got for the chorus." and and if it feels right, this might be a bridge, you know, because sometimes I don't even have a bridge if, it's, if it doesn't feel right. And then at that point, Tom will start playing the drums, Matt will find out what key I'm in, and then Allie kind of will, like, sit back, you know, and, and soak it all in, and she'll take out, you know, the notebook or whatever. A lot of times she just gets up right to the microphone and, just, and then we hit record, and she kind of just starts freestyling and then when that's recorded, she'll listen to it and she'll see the part that she likes and she'll kind of see the vocal melody and whatnot. And then, and then that's how stuff will come about. And then at that point, I'll listen to it again. And if, it, if it's anything that might be needed as far as, well, you know, Allie, maybe do like this on this part or maybe do like this on this part. Or the opposite of that might occur. She might listen to it and say, hey, Tommy, do only do it only three times for this verse and you know instead of the four that you're doing and stuff like that. and then and that's kind of really how it starts it, so it starts with 
need, you know, bringing, bringing people to the first course is the kind of like the foundation of, you know, the main riff and lick and stuff like that. And then everybody vibes off of that and starts putting pieces in it, you know, and if, and if anything happens, it's like, okay, let's adjust the tempo or let's do stuff. And then we say, okay, how do you guys like about that? Because a lot of songs have come about with stuff either being slowed down or, or sped up depending on, you know, how, how's it going. But that's pretty much like been our formula thus far. It's always been like riff do it and then she'll write something for it. If you were to describe yourself to someone, you know, if you were to describe Love Honey to an individual who's never heard your music, what would you tell mm-hmm. them? Describe Love Honey to people who are listening who've never heard you. I would definitely say that it's it's sexy, heavy, bluesy, rock and roll, you know, and, and uh, it's very soulful. And the times that, you know, we do R&B stuff is it's soulful. Because I, I look at a lot of the stuff that we're doing, it's just heavy R&B. It's really just R&B with fuzzed out guitars and, you know, psychedelic solos and big drums and, you know, and vocals. It's, it's really the tradition of that old school rock and roll in terms of like Zeppelin, very like early Sabbath, like the first two Sabbath records. Because if you play those same songs without the fuzz and without the distortion, you, you'll hear that lick and it's kind of like, this is like your standard R&B riff, you know? So that's kind of what I would describe as that, that heavy, sexy, dirty, you know, blues rock that you that you would get it, and it's you know it's, throw, it's throwback. It's definitely you know it's definitely heavily inspired by the sixties and and seventies that period of of rock and roll where it was really big, really you know in your really in your face, but at the same time it was very very soulful. So you can definitely see the influence of the early R and B and blues music, which I think in the 80s and the 90s had just disappeared and just became more kind of like, kind of like that cock rock or that kind of just heavy, but with no, no soul, no groove, you know, because you can, you can have heavy music and then you can have heavy music with a groove. And I think it's that groove that kind of just separates us from a lot of the other bands in terms of just being loud, but Nothing, you, you know, you, you can't nod your head to it. You can't, you can't move your body to it. But I always try to make sure that it, it has a groove. I'm, you know, being a fan of, you know, my dad playing James Brown records and playing the Motown and Stacks and all that type of stuff. I think that groove was just like embedded in my brain since a baby. So even when I picked up the guitar, I could play the most punkiest riff, but it'll still, or have a view to it that's like when you hear the Stooges Stooges is you know very soul soulful stuff because they were listening to Sun Ra they were listening to James Brown you might not people might not get it right away but the Stooges is some very soulful music that's true I mean when you listen to blues and, and when you have blues based rock music 
you know, there's a certain rawness and there's a certain emotion that comes out of what the person's playing. You know, I mean, that's the great thing about the blues is, you know, you can have five, you know, legendary blues artists play the same song and there's always an, a different interpretation to that song and it's always played differently. And that's always what's interested me with the blues is how, you know, the way the, the way the guitar player hits the strings, the way it's, you know, the, the, the delivery on the singing, it's all different. And then, you know, when you hear people say, Oh, blues all sounds the same. They may have heard the blues, but they've never heard the blues. You know what I mean? And yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So I, I, I think, you know, when you have that groove and they have that R and B influence mixed in with the blues rock, you know, of the of the Hendrixes and of the Zeppelins and you know, even the updated ones like the White Stripes as you mentioned, it's an interesting formula and it's and it's always going to feel different when you hear it rather than, you know, the big hard and heavy rock bands, which, you know, I think there's emotion in that too. I, I don't want to sell that short because there definitely is. Absolutely. But absolutely. It, absolutely. Yeah. 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 No, but it's just a different type of emotion. It's just a different type of presentation when, you know, band A versus band B coming from different backgrounds and different influences. Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, you see the shift in artists, from the seventies who, who now became the influence of more so modern day blues rock bands or bands that kind of hit with that in terms of like, when I think of Aerosmith, that's another band, one of uh, the influence, the band that I really, really, really dig a lot. But for me, my, my core of Aerosmith is lies in the first three albums you know, get your wings and toys in the attic. These kind of really, really blues rock oriented oriented albums. But then now you got that shifting, and then you hear like Guns N' Roses, and then and then you hear the band's been influenced by Guns N' Roses. So gradually, the shift of that blues rock really rooted in that early R and B stuff. It gradually like disintegrates. And you and and so what you end up getting is a really really bad or watered down version, in my opinion, of like Aerosmith. Like, because a lot of bands, their invitation into Aerosmith is like rocks, or you know, those those later albums where where Aerosmith is is more geared towards the radio, more geared towards making hits, opposed to like I mentioned those first three albums where it's like this is just dirty blues rock, you can hear the rich, you can hear the influence in there heavily. And so and, and so what ends up happening is I think a lot of modern artists, they're not listening to who their heroes were inspired by. They're just listening to their heroes. And what ends up happening is, you know, you might miss something and then as a result, you know, you you hear it in the music today that it doesn't have that soul, but then somebody says, Oh yeah, I really dig Aerosmith but but you like, do you, do you really, you know, get into the, the you know, when they were really down and dirty, like a, a blues band, you know? So, but you know, different strokes for different folks. But for me, I just really like, you know, when I knew the band was making, you know, that old school, aren't heavy on the blues rock. Well, it's also peeling back the orange too, as well. You know I mean? Like, you, you know, like you mentioned Aerosmith, 
And, you know, with Aerosmith, you know, 70s Aerosmith is quite different than 80s and beyond Aerosmith. Part of that is because, you know, when they made their debut record and they made, you know, Get Your Wings and Toys in the Attic, um, they were starving, right? And their circumstances mm-hmm. yeah. and, their, and, and their life surroundings were different. And, and that affects how you play. That affects what you write, you know, versus what was on permanent vacation and pump. You know, they weren't starving then. You know, they've got the big houses, the, yeah. the, the luxury cars. Yeah. So that affects their writing and that affects their perspective. And it's, it's, it's hard to be a blues-based band when, you know, you've got, you know, 10 cars and five homes. And, you know, I mean, it's hard to sing <laughs> about a, the blues. You know? it's hard, yeah, it's hard that's, to play the blues. That's a good point, man. You know, and yeah, then, that's an amazing that, yeah. And then you have, you know, peeling back the orange. You mentioned, you know, going back to those first three albums. Well, what inspired Zeppelin? I mean, obviously there's the, I'm sorry, what what inspired Aerosmith? So obviously there's that Zeppelin influence there. And as you keep going further and and the Stones and stuff, and then who, who, you know, influenced Zeppelin? You know, all those blues greats. Same thing with the Stones, you know, really big in, in American blues and the Delta blues of the South. So it's 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 interesting that you know if you have that ear to listen to what as you keep peeling back the layers what you'll find. I mean I've always enjoyed that. You know, I've always been that person that hears a song or hears a band and gets into that band and gets into their music and then goes, "All right, well who who influenced these guys?" And some a lot of times, you know, I've I've heard of the band and I've listened to their music, but there's always a couple of situations where I'm like, I've never heard that, or I, I may have heard that, but I never really listened to it. And I'll go back and check it out. And you can instantly hear that connection in the current band that you like, you know, with their influences. And, and I always find that interesting. And, and I always encourage everyone to do that. Um, you know, find out yeah. what's at the core of your favorite band. Yeah. And I, and I love it. It's just the best. It's one of the, it keeps things for me fresh because then you can kind of, like you said, you, you, you find out someone that you, you might never even heard of before, you know, doing these songs. And you think, like, again, you think of uh, Aerosmith and you think of, you know, Train Keep Rolling and you think about, like, Yardbirds did that song. You know what I mean? So then now you go back even. So now now we're back into the Yardbirds. So what inspired the Yardbirds? Or who was in the Yardbirds, whether it be, you know, like Eric Clapton or, or Jimmy Page, you know what I mean? And look, and we, we already know what those guys end up uh, becoming after being in that band. So it's amazing, you know, being able to research that and, 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 and hear all those things. But, you know, I've kind of always been connected to that, that type of music, of that deep, you know, where you can really smell it. You can really kind of smell the music and, and, and feel it. And who knows what, our music will sound like, you know, when those bigger things come into play. But I think for myself, you know, I'm always going to try to be true to the heroes and the stuff that I like. And, and because I know that there's more people, more people will relate to music that's, you know, for, you know, the common folk or the common man or woman than like, you know, the Lamborghini music. Because I remember hearing Billy Gork talk about like the worst thing that happened music artists is when they start talking about life on the road because no one knows what the hell they're talking about when they start talking about I've been at the airport for five days and I can't wait to see you again you know I'm like paraphrasing but he's like no one knows 
it, no one knows what you're talking about. Like no one understands that, but you become, you become in this bubble to the point to where you assume that the average listener knows what it is, like knows what you're talking about. And then you get all these particular songs that are like, I've been on the road for 30 days or, you know, or a whole year and I can't wait to see you and all that stuff. People are like, oh, what's this guy talking about? You know, so that's why I big spring thing because, you know, he's maintained, you know, change, you know, with the times, but it's the core of his music is always maintained, you know, for, for the audience that, that made him popular and that made him famous. And it, it never was like, oh man, the spring thing album sounds like, you know, the mansion that he lives in, you know what I mean? And, and it, but it, it never did that. He always, you know, stayed true to, you know, the core, which is just making that, you know, really good American rock and roll. You know? As you guys move forward and, and, you know, you guys did the EP in 2019 and you, you know, you had some recordings prior to that. What is the struggle for a new band like love honey to find an audience? You know, how do you guys move forward? How do you guys game plan to, you know, to get people to listen to you guys? I think the, the, I think the, the, the uh, problems that a band, like in our situation, would face is when you're doing, you know, retro, old school, out rock and roll, and the majority of your peers and like Brooklyn, you know, the Brooklyn music scene, that music is not the norm and it's not the most, and it's nor is it, you know, the, the most popular thing because you have the whole indie rock and keyboards and synthesizers and experimental and noise music and stuff like that. That's, that tends to be the norm in, in Brooklyn. And so when you have a band that's not doing that, it's great because you stand out but it limits you in terms of the instant fan base or instant, you know, notoriety that that you might get and where you can play also. Because a lot of the shows, a lot of those venues, they're geared towards those styles of music that I was, you know, referring to, where people don't want to have a bill and they have like three indie rock bands with keyboards and and that type of stuff. And then there's a band with guitar, bass, and drums, and they're just, and they're playing, you know, rock and roll. So that part is the first part that a band like us has. And then it's like, you know, realizing too that your core audience is going to be more of a mature, more, our audience is more older also too, in terms of like, when you're dealing with old school music, you're dealing with vinyl, you're dealing with cassettes, you're dealing with CDs and all that type of stuff because most of the people who listen to Led Zeppelin and listen to singers and stuff like that, they might be, they, they, the age bracket goes all over the place, but the core is the people who actually saw these bands back in the day, like people, you know, people in the age bracket of my parents. But most of those people don't go to shows, you know, especially on the lower scale of like the, in, the indie circuit. So, you know, it's finding that audience, which, you know, is, is difficult, but it exists. And um, because I think a band like us, you really need support from 
older, more mature bands that have already established that might be touring, like the, you know, like the Aerosmith or, you know, different bands like that. It's, it's easier for a band like us to be on tour with a band like that, but, and it would make sense for people, but getting in contact with, with, with a band like that is not gonna, it's not something that can easily happen. So, you know, so you kind of have to just make your own path. And as far as, okay, this is who we are, we're, we're, we're proud of it. And, and let's, you know, let's play anyway. So a lot of, so we would, so we just play and we put on our own shows, you know, and book our own shows at places. And, and uh, people started to see it and started to dig it and, and, and like it. But it's definitely not the norm when you think of rock and roll today. But, you know, luckily there was a slight shift like with a band like Greta Van Fleet at least coming out and the idea of that name led Zeppelin ringing in people's ears. It gave uh, a resurgence of the idea of classic rock as far as on the new scale of things. So that was a big boost for, for, for us, I believe, because it puts the, you know, it puts it out there for bands that are doing that, but you still have to have some sort of a connection or an end in, in the music industry is always going to be about who you know or who can give you a favor, who do you owe a favor, you know, who owes people favors to kind of get, get in these particular doors because, and if you don't know those people, then, then it's a harder road, but we've just been, you know, diligent about just, you know, plowing through regardless of not having those connections that a lot of bands might have. You know? What about your social media presence? I mean, that's a huge thing to connect with a younger audience and to get the word out about Love Honey. Yeah, that's been, that's been great. I mean, the, the, the social media thing is, is really good because, you know, we, we're, we kind of pride ourselves on making sure that we, the content that we have picture-wise and video-wise looks really good because in this day and age, you know, a lot of young people, they're, they're so geared towards appearance. They're so geared towards look. I mean, and, and, you know, because everyone's always on their phone. So we've used that. We've, we've acquired and gotten a lot of people, you know, involved with us just, be, just because of that. And then, you know, when people hear it, they actually really dig it. You know what I mean? Like if you look, when you look at our numbers as far as, you know, you know, our Spotify numbers as far as like how we can kind of chart where we're, our demographic, and we're we're covering everything from like teens all the way up into like the sixties. So we're we're covering all demographics, which is really good. And 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 I think a lot of that has to do with that we have a really good social media presence for the younger for the younger audience and but but then and the music is really ear pleasing to the older audience. So that that kinda helps us a, a, a lot with, with that. But, you know, you have to keep replenishing that and we try to kind of like do it when it makes sense and not just post and post and post just to be, you know, posting stuff. As we wrap up here, what is in store for Love Honey in 2020? I believe that in 2020, I really feel like it's kind of our uh, coming out party on a, on a, greater scale um, we want to finally come out with the debut album because we've had you know really good success with the EPs and it's been something that a lot of you know, you know rock and roll bands aren't doing 
you know, a lot of our peers, they just come out with albums and a lot of those albums get lost in the shuffle. And so that's why we've done EPs for so long, but you know, we've done five EPs and, and I think now after Cruda, it's time to, you know, give people that 10, 11 songs that they can just have and, and, you know, be with. And that's, and that's the only way too that you can really, you know, um, I think, really establish yourself. People want to, people are going to want a full, a full body, full body down. So definitely going to do that and have that, you know, finally put something on vinyl and do some, go to the UK. We're definitely going to go, go out to the UK and do that and, uh, do some, do some more shows outside of, outside New York City. And I think at this point, we'll probably just be looking for, uh, you know, a, a bigger tour to get on from, you know, a much more established artist so that can, that can bring us to a, a large audience. So do, do the debut record, uh, the, get the video and stuff for that and, and put together a nice, nice tour. And I think at that point that will really kind of let, you know, establish us to a, to a much bigger audience. Not necessarily thinking in terms about a label thing right now because if you can do all those things without a label, then 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 do it, you know. And because if a label comes along, it would have to make sense, and we would have to know that that's something that's going to, you know, instantly give us millions and millions of people that's going to turn on to our music, you know. And if that can't happen, then it really doesn't really it really doesn't make sense. So. You know, but I'm looking forward to it, man. Especially being able to play outside of, you know, America and uh, and be able to, you know, have this record out for people and and hopefully that might can generate some, you know, some award buzz. You never know, man. You know, if you put it out, see what happens. Absolutely, I'm looking forward to it. I've I've loved what you guys have released so far, and I think you know, brighter days are ahead. Big things are ahead. I think there's a undercurrent of a lot of great new rock bands that are out there. I've said it several times on the podcast, and I think that it's just a matter of time before you know rock and roll grabs the younger audience again and becomes more relevant. I think right now there is a little bit of a struggle. You know, rock and roll has been kind of sleeping here for the past decade or so, but I think it's about to have a resurgence, and I think there's a lot of great bands, including Love Honey, that are out there. Uh, thank you, man. And, and I totally agree. I mean, there's lots of new emerging talent and bands that are, you can tell when you hear them that they're, they're listening to some really good old school music. And that's, and, and you can hear it in, in everything. Great singers, great writers. And I think rock is needed now more than ever, term because all the heroes, they're all going on their farewell tours and someone's got to be able to, to come out now and keep that legacy of who rock and roll going because, you know, all the great, they're all on their last leg, but they, but they're holding the torch up for us so that we can be able to pick it up and, and carry it on into the, you know, the next 50, 60 years. You know? Absolutely. Well, Tommy, it's been a great conversation. Thank you very much for doing the new music spotlight. I do appreciate it. And when that record comes back, you know, when that record comes out, I'd love to have you back on. Oh, thank you so much, man. Thank you so much for having me. And I'll definitely keep you in the loop of everything. And you'll probably have like a single or something out before then. And I'll definitely, you'll be one of the first people to, to be able to check it out. And, and 
again, man, much props to everything that you're doing because it's giving people like me a platform and other great artists to, to be heard. And, and you need more things like what you're doing. So big shout out to you for doing what you're doing. Well, thank you very much. I enjoy it. I enjoy listening to new bands and I get, I, I enjoy getting other people to listen to new bands because I think it's so, so important, but thank you again. Thank you. Thank you so much. Son. Take care and talk to you soon. All right, everybody. That's Tommy White, guitar player from the Brooklyn-based band Love Honey. This is Jay Scott. This is The Hook Rocks, the ultimate rock community podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening. And as I always say, we'll talk again. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.